40 Days in the Desert is a Kundalini Pilgrim production, hosted by Sarit Maor Simrit. This podcast is part of my research and preparation for a journey of 40 days in the deserts of the Middle East, exploring the 40 days stories of the prophets of the religions that grew on this land and the yogic wisdom of 40 days practices. The intention is to create a new context for these 40 days stories. So I'm meeting people that have experience and wisdom in areas that are related to the vision of this journey. You're welcome to join me as I deeply listen to them. How do we create awareness on the past? And what is the past? It's the story. Like the past is, is a story in this context of the collective. It's a story. If I wasn't told the story when I was young, that story would not exist for me. And that reality then becomes the reality won't exist for me. We are here in, uh, in Moa, this desert, um, how would you call it? Desert... Oasis. Oasis. <laughs> desert oasis in... Uh, um, peace conference that was summoned by uh, the Buddhist uh, community that lives here. Um, and there was just uh, now a, a session, very interesting session, mm. uh, when there are a lot of interesting meetings. One of them that I was really, uh, one sentence that I took from the last last session which I, I feel really brings us together from a, a, a different angle than what we would otherwise maybe identify with, um, is when um, one of the speakers, uh, I don't remember his name, the Palestinian guy? Khaled. Khaled. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said that there are Already for uh, about 1,400 years, there are no prophets anymore. There are no prophets because there are actually thousands of prophets. <laughs> he said, all those who protect the water, those who protect the trees, those who protect the animals, those who protect the weak, they are the prophets. Mm. And there are many, many of them. So I come to you as a prophet to prophet. <laughs> this is a meeting of prophets. Um uh, or how else would you introduce yourself? <laughs> what a way to start the interview. <laughs> Hello, prophet. Hello, prophet. <laughs> Prophetess. <laughs> Is that the female version of the prophet? <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, I don't know. Did prophets ever introduce themselves as prophets as well? <laughs> I think, yeah. Then I think they were too humble to actually say that. Right. And some of them actually... The, uh, were very much uh, rejecting the idea of being called to do these things, to be prophets. Yeah. I think Moses was one who actually like, no, don't talk to me. Go, go find somebody else. <laughs> like running away from from the the, the, call, the calling. The calling, yeah. yeah. And that is so important because to understand how deep and how heavy and how big of a responsibility 
it is to carry this and the fact that most likely prophets will be rejected. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, prophets came for a purpose and they came usually in times when things went off track, when things were off balance and they came to tell the leaders and tell the priests that you're doing wrong and you need to get back on balance and to repent even. And of course, people in power completely would reject being told that they are doing something wrong and that they are sinners or, yeah, they're being violent to others mm -hmm. because they're in power. The way they got to power is by doing the right thing as far as they think. Yes. And so God gave us all of these things, gave us power, gave us riches because they still have, you know, this thing called religion and belief. And so who dare you to come and tell me that I'm doing something wrong? And so there's a lot of persecution when it comes to prophets. Right. There are many reasons why I want, I want to uh, document, <laughs> record this, this, this talk with you. Um, because of the, we were just before and during uh, lunch, we were talking about uh, the importance of uh, challenging any, clinging to any definition or identity. Um, still, something, um, there is, in a way, we can also use our identity. <laughs> so yes. uh, let's use our identities <laughs> here. So how can, would you introduce yourself differently? Okay. <laughs> Not yeah. only as a prophet. So I start with my name. <laughs> my name is Sami Awad and I live in Bethlehem. And I would identify myself as a Palestinian because this is a culture and a tradition that I am proud of, an inheritance of a people's group that has lived in this land for many, many years and has... Uh, a common theme and a common story between us that my story and my family's story is part of the Palestinian story. So I would identify as a Palestinian. Uh, yeah, and at the same time, not fully clinging to this identity as the main identity. Because I think when we talk about identities, it's, it's what do I put in the center and then everything hovers around it. So I say, yes, Palestinian is being part of it. And I would identify also, interestingly, I would in the past identify as a Christian, mm -hmm. my religious background. Uh, but more recently, I am disconnecting from that identity. And I would say I would identify as a follower of a rabbi who walked this land 2,000 years ago named Jesus. Mm -hmm. uh, and for me, it was very important mm -hmm. to... Uh, yeah, to discover Jesus when I actually let go of Christianity, when I let go of the uh, the structure, the the taboos, the the uh, uh, yeah the system of Christianity, the institution of Christianity, I discovered an amazing teacher and amazing teachings that I try my best to follow in my life. So did you grow up to uh, an institutionalized uh, religion, I, religious I, environment? I would say I grew up in probably one of the most institutionalized Christian uh, denominations even that has existed. I grew up in a very evangelical 
Pentecostal, charismatic, you know, like the born again movement. This is what I was born into and grew up in. And, and I honor it for what it taught me. Uh, I grew up uh, going to church twice on Sunday. Why in twice? In the morning and in the evening. Uh, going to Sunday school on Friday (laughs) (laughs) because there wasn't even time to go to Sunday school on Sunday. We used to go to Sunday school on Friday. Uh, So three, four times a week to go to church. I grew up in a family that was very religious, uh, very committed to Christianity. Uh, My father started the Bethlehem Bible College, which is the only institute to train Palestinian Christian leaders in the Palestinian territories and occupied territories. Uh, so I grew up fully in that in that space, and uh, and as I said, I'm thankful. I'm I'm I don't uh, regret, uh, especially growing up in a family that understood Christianity also in a way where it wasn't about possession, it wasn't about greed, it was about peacemaking, it was about giving, it was about caring for the others. That's that's the father and mother that I grew up with. Mm-hmm. So they had a different understanding of Christianity than maybe many others do but at the same time there were limitations to it it was still the faith that anybody who rejected that faith was going to go to hell and that is something that I've completely surpassed it uh, doesn't exist for me anymore to, to speak this or to think this so the exclusivity of it is something that I had to liberate myself from and to yeah to honor it as one of multitudes of religion and then for me religion is humans best attempt to understand things <laughs> to try to justify what's going on understand what's going on where we came from where we're going after we died we're, we're trying to figure this question out and religion becomes one of the tools that yeah. we use uh, so for me uh, a big part of also my my leaving christianity is uh is for me, my, my journey, and if I want to say this, maybe my religion, is the, the journey of moving from fear to love. And so any religion or ideology that I'm part of that has some fear embedded in it, like if you don't do this, you're a sinner, you will go to hell. If you don't do this, like these teachings that are completely based on fear and that God is a judgmental God, that God will uh you know send you to hell or like these these things i don't believe in anymore so so if my christianity was actually saying this then i say no i don't want to be part of any religion that teaches or promotes or engages in fear with its people mm-hmm. so yeah and and i went through my phases growing up i mean at one point i was fully in it and then when i went to college in the us i was fully out of it and then I had this movement back and forth in it. And then and then for me, it was actually a time uh, in around 2002, 2003, when, uh, when I decided I want to read the Bible, the whole thing, from the Torah to Revelations, the whole Bible. And uh, so you start with Genesis. But then because what we refer to as the Old Testament is so long. I jumped from the Old Testament straight to the New Testament. So I, st- I read the first three chapters of Genesis, Genesis. and then went to Matthew, <laughs> the first book of the uh, the New Testament. And, and one of the biggest uh, teachings in Matthew is something called the Sermon on the Mount, mm-hmm. when Jesus went to the mountain and started teaching. It, it's known like as the inaugural speech 
of Jesus. If people want to learn anything about Jesus, to read Matthew 5, 6, 7, and that's, that's it. Like this is the core of the teachings. And it was during the time when the second intifada was very strong. The siege of Bethlehem was, was just happened. Uh, shooting, killing, violence everywhere. The peace process had collapsed. And as I was reading it, I was actually struck by a verse that wasn't new to me. Uh, many Christians talk about it uh, because they think it's unique to this religion. And the verse was, love your enemy. And, and for me, I couldn't just pass it. I got stuck in it. I like it, the, the feeling that I had was as if those three words popped out from the pages into my face, love your enemy. And, and, and I really started a journey. What does it mean? At times when it was most difficult yeah. to, to do it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the enemy is killing me, killing my people. Uh, yeah. There's war, there's violence. And then like, and why aren't Christians doing this? And realizing that, you know, sadly, in the name of Christianity, more people have been killed than all religions combined. Right. People who claim to be Christians have done more damage, more destruction to nature, to other human beings, to animals, than all the other religions combined. So what's, what's going on? A basic command. It's not even... It's not like an option. I would like for you one day to consider loving your enemy. He didn't say this. Or I hope you reach some point of enlightenment where you will start loving your enemy. You, like it's one of the first verses in the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemy and pray for those who curse you. And it's a commandment. It's an order. So you want to follow a teacher, if he's the Messiah or rabbi, and you can't pick and choose you know, I don't like this verse. I don't follow it. I no, like you want to follow, you follow everything because there's wisdom in what he was saying. And it took me on a journey. And what does it mean? And that's when I started saying, yeah, I need to let go of Christianity to really understand what Jesus was talking about. Because it wasn't within the institution. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a verse we're proud of. It's a verse we preach about, talk about, but it's not lived out. Yeah. And to realize that there are a lot of what Jesus was saying that is not lived out. Mm-hmm. That we again we pick and choose what we want. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and so for me it was this. That was the beginning of what I would call my spiritual enlightenment or practice to really, yeah, to live my life in the core teachings of love. Mm-hmm. And I remember once I heard you also um, speak about your grandmother. Oh yes, in that sense. <laughs> Yeah. As, as a living teacher for you. Yeah. Yeah, my grandmother uh, in 1948 in the war uh, lost her husband in the war. She lost her uh, home, lost her possessions, lost everything and was kicked out and became a refugee. Uh, her and her seven children, the oldest was 12 and the youngest was two. And, and she was a spiritual woman. She was a woman of faith. Uh, and uh, she was a woman that always insisted with everything that she lost that as a family we will never seek revenge and retaliation for what happened to us and at the same time we will never remain silent in the face of violence and injustice that we will proactively seek peace and reconciliation with those who did this to us so she's she's the prophet yes (laughs) she's the prophet of the family the family for us (laughs) yes yeah, and then that's the seed that she planted. And then for me growing up as a child, it wasn't easy to even 
understand what she was teaching or what my father was teaching through her uh, in the reality of as a Palestinian living under occupation, living under direct Israeli military rule, seeing violence, witnessing violence, being afraid of soldiers. And when they came into, my father was running a school at that time and they would come and raid the school many, many times. And even as a nine-year-old child, I remember arguing with my father, how dare you ask us to make peace with them and look what they're doing to us. Yeah. Yeah, but that was then. Then, And my life began to change after that. And a big influence was an uncle of mine, Mubarak Awad, who uh, began to teach and work with nonviolent resistance and activism. And for me, it was a bridge between the two narratives. The narrative of the reality of violence that I was living and reaching that goal of peace was through nonviolence. And I began to participate since I was 12 with a lot of nonviolent actions, activities, demonstrations, protests. The first was planting olive trees in a land that was going to be confiscated by Israeli settlements near Bethlehem. And that was the first demonstration I went to. And when I was there, the uh, the army came, the Israeli army came. And, and I remember my uncle was saying, you are here to plant your trees. Don't do anything but plant your trees. If the soldiers come, if the settlers come, just plant your trees. So as a 12-year-old child, I listened to my uncle. So I'm planting the trees as the soldiers were making commotion and yelling and shouting. And one soldier actually came from behind me and grabbed the tree that I had just, just put in mm. the hole and took it out of the ground and threw it on some rocks nearby. And I, I think that was one of, you know, when they say a moment that changed your life completely, that yeah. was probably the first moment that transformed my life. Because... As a 12-year-old, I could have ran away. I could have cried. I could have, who knows, I could have frozen in my place. Right. And the only thing I remember was plant your trees. So as soon as I saw the shadow of the soldier walk away, I went and grabbed the tree and put it back in the ground and covered it with dirt. And that was so empowering for me. It showed how nonviolence is about empowerment. It's not about others controlling me and deciding for me that I can make my own decisions and doing it peacefully, doing it without hurting the other. And so that was a big turning point in my life. A second turning point was in the first Intifada, in the first uprising. Can we stay with that moment, please? Oh, yes, please. please. Yeah. I, I like to really... Yeah, yeah because these moments are, um, you know, this is what will be written in our book. Mm. <laughs> Yeah. In the book of our life and, and our life's journey. Um, what is already written there. Um, so just how much in that moment is actually revealing the uh, your future journey. Yeah. So there is the, the non-violence. There is the inner peace that you are holding as a very young boy, which is quite amazing. Yeah. And there's also the deep connection to nature because you were not only um, coming as a Palestinian, you were coming as a human, um, mm. like um, being um, nurturing yeah. nature, giving space for nature. So I just wonder about also your path before we go into the political map, into how the environment Mm. has also affected your path, also Bethlehem in the desert. Yeah, I mean, uh, 
the beautiful thing about where I grew up uh, in Bejala, I grew up in a house that was in the middle of a little forest. <laughs> so I grew up with trees and with animals all the time. I think at one point I probably climbed every single tree that was in this little forest where our house was. And so there has always been this connection to trees and to land that I had. And then this was just, yeah, this example was just another one of reconnecting and replenishing the land with, with trees, with the olive tree and the symbolism of the olive tree yeah. as well. Uh, and at the same time, for me, you know, growing up also as a family where being in nature was also a big part of who we were. I mean, going on, it could have been even trips, nothing like even a spiritual practice, but going out and going to the desert and going out into nature was something that we did a lot of as well as children. And especially connecting it with the religious stories. My father, as I said, is very religious and mm -hmm. we would have groups and a big part of what he did with the groups was to go out. If it's the Galilee, Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee, or if it's the desert, if it's Jericho, these were things we did continuously, taking people into these spaces. And my father would talk about the, the biblical landscape and the connection yes. to land. Uh, yeah, so it's a big part of my childhood, this connection to the trees and to nature. And yeah, as I'm just sitting, I'm remembering even even specific trees that I used to climb when yeah. I was a child and <laughs> where I lived. Interesting. I was yeah. also a tree climber. Uh -huh. Good. <laughs> <laughs> but there wasn't much. It was also only in our garden, just these uh, citrus trees. Yeah. And yeah, I would climb, but also anywhere else, you know, whenever there was a tree, yeah. I would, I would go up. up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think trees like it when we climb them. <laughs> Especially children. <laughs> yes, of for course. For sure. <laughs> like yeah. they are like, yeah, you can feel the joy, yeah. the common joy. Exactly. At the age of 16, my uncle, who I was talking about, was arrested by the Israeli government in the First Intifada. Mm -hmm. A man who was fully committed to nonviolence. He was actually known as the Gandhi of the Middle East at that time. Wow. And uh, working with Israeli peace activists, working with internationals, he, he really created a movement that for many people actually say what he was teaching before the First Intifada was was a catalyst for the Intifada itself. Like he, he, his teachings were seen as what helped launch the Intifada, the first Intifada. And in 1988, in the second year of the Intifada, he was arrested by the Israeli government and he was put on trial. And it was quite a trial. I mean, it was quite... Uh, had a lot of media coverage, a lot of government interest because my uncle is an American citizen, so he's an American citizen who's also Palestinian, who's being arrested by Israel, which is the closest ally to us. So the U.S. government even got involved about the arrest of an American citizen. 
And uh, I, I remember I used to, at that time, we didn't have checkpoints between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. Buses used to go back and forth mm. at ease. So I would finish school and get on a bus and go to Maskubiya in Jerusalem where the police station was where he was arrested and just sit in the visuals that were happening outside. Israelis and Palestinians coming in protest and holding visuals for him. And then mm. when it got very late, I would grab the last bus and go back. So every day I would be there as much as I can. If I'm as, if I was able to go into the trial, I would go into the trial itself. Um, and uh, at the end of the trial and the rest was six months period, the Israeli court issued deportation orders for him to be kicked out and lose his uh, residency, his right to live here. So his identity card was completely revoked from him. Wow. Uh, and the scene, again, that one moment scene, the scene that I cannot take out of my head was when he, when the court decision was made, we were actually outside, yeah, uh, outside the, the courthouse. And it was to be executed immediately, like he was to be sent to the airport immediately. Right away from right the court. Right away from the court. No goodbyes, no... Nothing, nothing. And I remember he was walking down a staircase to the police car that was going to take him, a police uh, minivan, and he had handcuffs with uh, a chain that connected to his ankles. So he had his mm -hmm. ankles cuffed and his handcuffed. And he was like limp, limping on the stairs to try to get his footing. Mm -hmm. And in in a split second, he looked at me in a crowd of hundreds who were there and smiled. And like this moment just got frozen in time. Yeah. He smiled and then turned around and got in the van and like the the, the peace and the joy that he had in his heart. And in a sense, what he was telling me was nonviolence won. Nonviolence was successful. Yeah. If the Israeli government in all of its strength and might saw me as one person, a threat, then this is the power of nonviolence. Yeah. It is a sign to where, sign to where the threat yeah. for, for the system is. Yeah, he yeah. didn't have any fear. He didn't have any doubt. He didn't have any... Yeah. No regret. No regret and no anger and no ill feeling. Like, he just smiled and got in the van. Yeah, and was taken to the airport. And and that was another turning point in my life at a young age. And it was that moment that I decided to commit my life to understanding nonviolence. Wow. To learning what is the power of nonviolence that makes a government, as our country, as strong as Israel, see in my uncle. And the, the Israeli government actually labeled him a threat to the national security of Israel. Not just a threat, not just an obstacle, not just a nuisance a threat to the national security, which is like something you give other countries that title. And this one person was seen as that. And that began my journey to really understand and learn and practice nonviolence.
very quickly because it was still in the first intifada. I became very, very active. That's, that was you were still very young. Yeah, at, 16? at 16, 17, I was head of the student union of my school. I was leading demonstrations and protests in Bejala. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I was organizing uh, all kinds of activities. And at one point, this really military decided to shut down all schools and universities because this is where protests were happening. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that that allowed us to do was to protest everywhere. We didn't have to go to school anymore. We could just <laughs> protest wherever we were living. And my father got very worried because mm-hmm. I was becoming very active and, and kids my age were being killed or arrested right. all the time. Mm-hmm. And he decided to send me and I have a younger brother to the U.S., to continue our education because we didn't we didn't go to school anymore. There was no school and there was a lot of danger. Yes. So. And it's not a decision I liked, yeah. uh, but we didn't have a choice. And we went to the U.S. where I continued my education there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and it wasn't easy uh, to be out of the intifada, to be out of that... To be away. The, you know, the the feeling of unity that existed at that time, the feeling of... There, there was meaning. They were like... Yeah, the, the, the many people don't know the first intifada other than seeing the pictures of throwing rocks and shooting, but the level of solidarity, the level of community, the level of caring for each other that existed... I sadly have, haven't seen it since that time. Uh, as a child, I was 16 years old. And because I was born in the U.S., I have a U.S. passport. And so even during times of curfew, without even having a driver's license, I would drive the car using my U.S. passport to Jerusalem to bring bread for Bejala to, to the neighborhood that we lived in. And, and we would give bread to all the families. Like Everybody gave what they had and shared everything they had. Uh, home gardens were happening. People were sh- again back to land and yes. the plants. Like people were okay. We, there's curfews. We can't buy food. We plant our own food. We boycott Israeli products. We do our own uh, food, our own milk. Uh, yeah, we, we just create self sustainability. It, it was amazing. Uh, school schooling. When they shut the schools, people were studying in homes. Yes. People were going to teachers' homes, and there was a program. Like kids would go from the math teacher to the Arabic language teacher to the history teacher, and the teachers would have blackboards in their homes, and they would teach. It, it was an amazing, amazing. This this is the no. first intifada for me. More than just the resistance, the sense of unity and caring and uh, honoring each other that existed. That sadly got lost as well. And so I left that to go to Kansas. <laughs> Out of all places, even in the U.S., in the middle of nowhere well, in Kansas. Kansas. That's like um, um, that famous movie. Yeah, The Wizard of Oz exactly. and Dorothy. <laughs> I know. I, everybody, every time I say Kansas, somebody has to make a joke of, you're not home anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it was... Uh, yeah, I, I think my reaction as a child then, you know, 16, 17-year-old child, what, what I did was my response was to rebel against my father, against my family, against my religion, against my even against being Palestinian. To, to fit into American culture, I became very American. I grew my hair, I bought my biker jacket, I, I listened to 
Guns N' Roses and Metallica, you know, like I just became what the rest was and I blended yes, in. Abandoned, started rejecting where I came from. Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, I got into the, the rock and roll life of the average American teenager of the 80s and early 90s at that time, and which wasn't uh, the cleanest. <laughs> Sex, drugs, and rock and roll, that's what the themes of that time was. Uh, but I remember my, uh, of course, like my father would come and visit or my parents would come and they would see me. Like, I mean, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't like this violent towards them. Like I, was, I fully honored my parents, I, uh, but just having long hair and then having a biker jacket and going out was too much it's for already them. already a lot, yeah. Yeah, for them it's too much. Yeah. You're here to study and not to become like this. Yeah. And uh, my grandmother was living in Kansas at that time. And... Uh, and she would hold my father back, like, just let him be. If you pressure him, he will go further. Right. Just let him be. He has to have these experiences. Yeah. Your son has a clean heart. Just let him be. It's the same grandmother. The same grandmother, yeah. And by that time, I was in college. And, uh, yeah, uh, all the stories of college. <laughs> How much time do you have? <laughs> or maybe the audience doesn't don't want to hear these stories. <laughs> uh, well, college about is probably a time when you are really um, there is a lot of your future is being crystallized, or if your identities or ideas. Well, let me not? say or not. Let me say I remember very little from college. <laughs> okay. That kind of <laughs> that college. kind of college. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And, and it wasn't any like dramatic event. I. I wasn't even like drunk or anything. I went to sleep and woke up the next day and I said, okay, I've had enough of this. It's finished. And I'm done. Yeah. I cut my hair, uh, pulled out of this college, went to another university, a bigger university closer to Kansas City and finished my last two years in political science. Had a beautiful mentor as a woman who was teaching me and helping me and supporting me. That was it. a phase that was gone. And I went back into the political activism and the work. Yeah, but still, exactly, you went to political yeah. science. Yeah, yeah. So, so finished my degree in political science. And that 17-year-old that boy was still... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then I did my master's in international relations with a focus on peace and conflict resolution mm -hmm. as well. So, yeah. So what my uncle planted and what my grandmother planted, that really became my life. A tree. <laughs> yeah. A peaceful tree. Vayanti garyanti jagadu te pati adiketu aha Brahma detresha And then what happened later when you came back to, to, uh, to the Middle East? Yeah. So I finished my graduate degree in 1996. A week after I graduated, I was on a plane to come back home because now I have a degree in international relations with a focus on peace studies and we were in the middle of the Oslo peace process and I came to play my role mm -hmm. in making this peace happen and building the Palestinian state, the promise of Oslo, the two-state solution. And I came back excited. Uh, I mean, I was in Washington, D.C. when Yasser Arafat and Rabin shook hands in the White House lawn. Oh. I mean, we were there. 
And so for me, the Oslo peace process was the it, the dream of all dreams, the, the Cinderella story that we're going to live happily ever after in the two-state solution framework that we were promised. And so I came back to play my role in making this peace happen. Uh, but very, very quickly, I began to realize that there is really something wrong with this peace process. And... Uh, and it, again, it wasn't against the two-state solution. It was, we need to fix, there's like, we can't just remain silent when these things are happening. And, and the two main things that were happening that were the trigger for me, the first issue was the issue of the settlements. Mm-hmm. So these Jewish-only cities and housing communities that were built inside the occupied territories. And people who believed and still believe in the two-state solution say the settlements are an obstacle. The problem wasn't with the existing settlements. The problem that during the peace process, the Israeli government engaged in a policy to take more land and to build more settlements and move more settlers than even before the peace process began. Yeah. And it didn't matter if it was labor or Likud, right or left. It was government policy. Is it really right and left? Is it really right and left? Mm. For sure it's not. Yeah. No. But, like, but if they say like the left is the peace and the right is... No, they were both... Doing the settlement uh, enterprise, land. yeah, and like, what's the point? Why why are you talking about two states when you're doing this? It mm-hmm. just doesn't make sense. Yeah. And of course, the settlements were not just the land that was taken; it was the roads that were built to connect the settlements that Palestinians now were not allowed to drive yeah. on them. It was checkpoints created at certain places that don't allow Palestinians to get close to the settlements, and the fences that began to be built. And so that was a very big trigger uh, for me. A second issue that was also a challenge was in the whole notion of peace itself. You know, if, if we talk about peace between nations and peace between communities, we, we use words like reconciliation, getting together, building trust, uh, addressing the past, healing it, moving towards the future, vision together, connectedness. It's Peace is about bringing people together. And again, the challenge was that during the years of the peace process, there was actually more separation, uh, more segregation. It became more difficult for Palestinians and Israelis to meet each other than before the peace process began. Right. Like Again, what, what, what is this peace that is making it difficult for me to meet Israelis? Now I have to have a permit as a Palestinian. I never had a permit in this land to go from one city to the other. We were free to move. We were free to move. We had all the restrictions of the Israeli military on us yeah. until that until the peace process began, but freedom of movement wasn't an issue. Yes. And all of a sudden, we can't move without permits during a peace process. And Israelis who want to come visit us also have to apply for permits from the Israeli military. And so these two triggers led me to think we have to do something about it. And that's when in 1998 I started... Holy Land Trust as an organization and our slogan is strengthening communities for the future, that it's about communities. The politicians can decide whatever they want and they have their own economic and political and ideological interest. But if the communities are not embedded in this peace, don't see the value of this peace for their own lives, then that peace will not last. And that's why we started Whole Land Trust, to, mm-hmm. to strengthen the communities so that they can be actively involved in the peacemaking work, not just top-down, that we have to have a voice in this. Uh, but by the time we were just getting ready to start our work, of course, the whole peace process did collapse and the Second Intifada started. Yeah. 
which was much more violent and deadly and harmful than 2001 and 2000 2000 October 2000 yeah 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 and when the intifada started uh, immediately we shifted our work to the work that my uncle was doing nonviolent resistance and activism and again very quickly we became a leading organization and i became a leader in the nonviolent resistance movement organizing demonstrations and protests and sit-ins just like when i was uh, 16 years old <laughs> yeah yeah and uh, yeah working with israelis with palestinians internationals in direct action and and we became very very popular in this work a lot of media attention a lot of interest a lot of rejection many palestinians rejected yeah, nonviolence sure. and of course israeli military fully rejected nonviolence so i was arrested detained beaten up my movement was monitored by the israeli intelligence in bethlehem like if i was in a restaurant they would know if i was in a meeting they would know uh yeah and and that continued and we grew very quickly as an organization in 5 years i had 45 people working we had trainers everywhere training in nonviolence like we we became a key figure in the nonviolent resistance movement because because a lot of people actually wanted that a lot of people understood that, that this is yeah. th- the way to go yeah and and to say that most people when we talk about nonviolence they understand it from a strategic and pragmatic point of view in the school of pragmatism there is this example that we use all the time it's uh, you know if imagine that you had a neighbor that was parking his car in your front yard every day and going out to his house and then uh, and if it's your front yard you want him to stop it and you realize that your neighbor is the world champion sumo wrestler <laughs> now the last thing you want to do is put on a sumo outfit and knock at his door and say come on <laughs> Yeah. Let's fight over this who gets to get the parking lot. No, you have to be smart and you have to be strategic and you have to use a tactic that is not in the strength of your neighbor. And so many Palestinians they see Israel in a strong military force and ability uh, to use militarism and and violence. And so they say, yeah, we cannot do it at their level. So we choose non-violence. So this is like a pragmatic understanding. Mm-hmm. And and for me I would admit and say a lot of when we started our non-violence was coming from this pragmatic and strategic point of view it wasn't a rejection of violence it was yeah our best option to get anything done is through nonviolence mm-hmm. and um, yeah at a certain point in in the highest of my highs i opened that bible and read the text of loving the enemy yeah so it's not exact so that it's not just nonviolence it's not it's, just nonviolence it's love exactly and what i realized at that point that a lot of my nonviolence activism wasn't just strategic and pragmatic it was coming out of hatred it was coming out of a deep hatred to the other side and if i use nonviolence then i can actually expose them for the evil that they are and the world will see them how bad they are and the world will hate them for who they are and what they're doing to me so my nonviolence was a strategy of i would even say demonizing the other and dehumanizing the other mm. and uh, loving the enemy was the moment and from that moment i stopped going to these demonstrations as amazing as they were as 
as creative as they were. I, said, I cannot engage in any resistance that has any place of fear or hatred in me. It has to be fully embedded in love, my activism. And, uh, and that took me on a whole new journey that has uh, shifted my life multiple, <laughs> multiple, multiple times since then. Within a few weeks from that uh, experience, I got an invitation from uh, uh, the Zen peacemaker community, Bernie Glassman and Eve Marco. Mm. I don't know if you, you know them or met them. I heard about them, yeah. yes. And, uh, and, and they, they've, they've done work with us before in, in the circle work and uh, council. And, and I knew about this bearing witness retreat that they hold, but it was something else that they did. And Eve told me, for some reason, you just kept coming to our mind this week to invite you to the bearing witness retreat, which is the retreat that they do in Auschwitz and Bergenau. And uh, yeah, and we would like for you to come to the next one. And uh, it was interesting because during that time, as Palestinians, we could not get out of the West Bank without getting a permit from the Israeli Israelis. military. And and when I submitted my permit, my request for a permit, I actually put to go to Auschwitz. And the Israeli commander called me for to interrogate with me in uh, in his office in Goshatzion, and he yelled at me. How dare I think of going to Auschwitz? This has nothing to do with you. This has nothing to do with anything. Why do you want to go there? Like really this harsh interrogation. I don't even think I even answered the question. He was just yelling at me the whole time and told me that it's rejected, that I will not go. So he did not allow me to go to Auschwitz. The next year came, they didn't have this, this restriction, so I was able to go to the Bearing Witness Retreat. And it was another transformative moment in my life to bear witness to the Holocaust, to see the history of Jewish suffering in Europe for hundreds, thousands of years leading up to the Holocaust and to be there, like to be in Auschwitz. It's, it's uh, yeah, it's, it can't even describe it, can't put it in words. I've not dared. I was not far, but I didn't, I didn't go. Yeah. Yeah, I recommend that to anybody to go there. It's very important for us to know this as uh, not just the history of what's happening here, but as our human history. What was shocking for me when I was in Auschwitz as much as the history of it was also how uh, next generations of Israeli children were introduced to the narrative of Auschwitz. Yeah, because there are a lot of uh, like school trips yeah. going yearly. Thousands, to... thousands of children every year go on these trips, Israeli yeah. children. And... Uh, the the challenge, of course, I mean, yeah, I think it's very important that people know their history and know what happened and to honor their ancestors for what they went through. The challenge and the problem for me that these teachers were not talking about what happened. They were describing the ongoing continuous story of what it means to be a Jew. And Auschwitz was just one of the stops 
of the continuous and ongoing story of Jewish suffering that does not end. So, yeah, and, and, and these children were indoctrinated into an ideology of fear. They were being told, uh, they would even use the, the text from Seder, from Passover, if uh, every generation and nation rises up to destroy us. Right. This is who we are, like these teachers, this is who we are as Jews. Every generation, your generation and the next generation, there will be a nation that will rise up and try to destroy you. And then they would say, guess who the next nation is if they have an opportunity? And the children yes. would say, the Palestinians. And I'm standing there. They don't know I'm a Palestinian. I'm listening to this. Yeah. Eve is translating for me. Like, oh my God, this is what this conflict is about. It's not about a political conflict of two nations fighting over the same piece of land. This is a conflict and a war and an occupation that is deeply embedded in fear and trauma. Uh, yeah. I mean, this child is being told that if Sammy has an opportunity, he will do exactly to you what the Nazis did to your great-grandfather. That's, <laughs> and that's why they were used. This is why we have to be secure. This is why we never let our guard down. This is why we never trust anybody. We never trust anybody. How can you be talking about peace when you cannot even have trust with the person that, you're talking with or negotiating with or building trust with them. And that's when I realized that the Oslo peace process was doomed to failure, even if they reached agreement, because it was all embedded from fear, the demographic threat. Yes. You know, the Israeli society is afraid that one day there's going to be more non-Jews than Jews in this land. And as if we are going to organize ourselves and commit the Holocaust or throw them into the sea. And that's why... I realized that even the calling for the two-state solution was coming out of fear. How do Jews maintain an exclusive Jewish state to protect themselves from this ever happening again? Right. By getting rid of the Palestinians. It wasn't about honoring us by giving us a state or, or respecting our journey of suffering to give us a state or even presenting it a sense of justice to give them a state. No, we have to do this because if we don't do this, there's going to be more of them than us and they will commit the Holocaust because they are the nation that's going to do that. So let's reach an agreement with them. And so it just turned my life around this experience. And then realizing that many of my act, Israeli peace activist friends who are still pushing for the two-state solution are doing it out of fear. You know, the state of Israel for them is a safe, secure, beautiful, privileged place to be Jewish, to be Zionist, to be in a somehow a democracy. Why do we get rid of why should we get rid of this? We get rid of the people that are going to be a threat to this by giving them a state. But but this is not peace. So from that experience in Auschwitz I came back and I met with my staff and I said, yeah, I mean nonviolence is still the cornerstone of our work. But if we don't address the trauma, the collective trauma of our communities, there can never be peace here. And I shared with them what happened in Auschwitz and many of my staff completely rejected this idea. How can we as the victims even think about understanding what is the trauma of our victimizer? 
And, and one of them actually yelled at me and, and resigned on the spot by saying, as if you are asking a woman who is continuously getting raped by a man to understand his motivation. His motivation. Why is mm-hmm. he doing this? Mm-hmm. And they called me insane and and I had people leave me. And uh, yeah, but for me that was, uh, I couldn't get this out of my head. Uh, what I experienced, I couldn't just neglect and say, okay, we go back into our nonviolent political activism and this will be the solution. The healing of the people here became a very big component of, of uh, my mission and my work at that time. Palestinians and Israelis, we're both traumatized. We're both motivated by our traumas from the past. And it's not about comparing the traumas, but it's just, it, this is the energy that motivates us. The Nakba for the Palestinians, the Shoah for the Jewish community. It, it, it's not an experience. It's, it's shaped our identity. Yeah. And then for me, I, I mean, I, I say this and I do this work and I sometimes wonder if it's even possible. Can you redesign identity out of an experience Such like a this? Such a trauma. Can, can Judaism actually flourish as an identity by keeping the Holocaust as an experience, but not as who we are, or the 2,000 years of Jewish suffering as who we are, but experiences that we've had and, and redesign and shape the identity in values that are different in Judaism than suffering. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a question for me. I mean, I'm doing this work and I'm engaging in it, but it's a big, big challenge. I think it's the biggest challenge of peacemaking because it's redesigning identity in a sense or yeah. reshaping identity, retransforming identity. I just wonder, you know, when you speak about this, I, I think about the kind of work that I witness doing the Kundalini Yoga that gets also on individual level. Um, many times gets people to meet the, the memory of trauma as it's embedded in their body. And I just wonder, as nations, as collectives, how do we get to the body of the nation to meet the trauma at this deep level? And so what is the body of the nation? Exactly. That's a really good question. (laughs) Um, Is it the land? Partly. There's partly the land, but I think it's... I want to say our body is the story. Like if, if we are able to see that this is who we are, that like this, this experience has become embedded in the story of, yes, of who we are. Then, then once we realize this, we could put it in its right place. Yeah. And so our our collective body, our collective body is our collective story. So how do we? Exactly. Heal the story, the the these bodies by yeah. changing the story, or um, understanding it differently, yeah. or or maybe not identifying with it in the way we have been identified yeah. with it. Yeah, awareness. I mean, like just the consciousness and the mindfulness and the awareness. Ah, okay, mm-hmm. now I'm being motivated by this part of my story. Then I have access to choice instead of just automatically being motivated by mm-hmm. it. And let's say, okay. 
okay, this is, and, and this is a big part of the work that we do in a methodology that we have called nonlinear thinking, yeah. which is uh, the third level of our engagement. So we have the nonviolence work, we have the trauma healing work, and then we have the nonlinear thinking, which is about the main component of it is to understand how we as human beings make our decisions. You know, we're always making decisions. Mm-hmm. We make... Or we think we do. <laughs> well, I mean, we're thinking decisions at least. Yes. But yeah, I mean, you know, like research, you know, you know how, how many thoughts a human being has in a day. The yogis say um, a thousand per blink of an eye. Yes, very, yeah. <laughs> so they say between 70 and 80,000 thoughts a day that yeah. an average person has. And most of our thinking actually is in the realm of decision making. Yeah. To eat, not to eat, mm-hmm. to go, not to go. Even when I'm speaking, I'm deciding what are the words that are going to come out of my mouth. So I'm mm-hmm. just in the last minute of speaking, I've made maybe 500 decisions or how many ever decisions. Like every word is a, is decided. And so then we go to go deeper and ask what makes me decide what I decide. Mm-hmm. What? Yeah, and it's the past. All yes. the decisions that I make are motivated by my past. Experience, inherited, uh, energies, uh, things I read, a movie that I watched influences me and how I relate to something. The moment my mother left me crying an extra half an hour shapes me and mm-hmm. how I decide to walk in a room, for example. That's dark. For, mm-hmm. Who knows? Like This is like deep work. So in the yogic language, you know, yeah. we refer to it as, you know, we see in the Kundalini Yoga, three parts of the mind. One is called the negative, one is positive, and one is neutral. The negative mind, that's the, the, the storehouse, yeah, mm. is it's the organic mind. Mm. Again, I go back to the body yeah. because the story is organically um, coded in my memory. And then yeah. if it's not consciously cleared and cleansed, mm-hmm. then it becomes... The decision, the decision maker. Yeah, exactly. Which has nothing to do with the present moment. It's not not at all aware yeah. of the reality. It lives according to a non-reality. Exactly. So yeah, yeah. so very similar work yes. that we do as well. That's consciousness. Yeah. The work of consciousness. So our yeah. journey is how do we? Yeah. So the methodology is how do we create awareness? On the past. And what is the past? It's yeah. the story. Like the past is is a story in this context of the collective. It's a story. If I wasn't told the story when I was young, that story would not exist for me. Mm-hmm. And that reality then becomes the reality wouldn't exist for me. Yes. And so so if I'm making my decisions from the past, on, on one level it's good. Mm-hmm. Because if I have a bad experience, then... I make a decision not to go to that same place. So I wouldn't have that bad experience. Even as simple as going to a restaurant. If I got food poisoning, I'm smart. I don't go to there again. I use the past to help me motivate or help me maneuver. Or protect you. And protect me. Very basic protection. Exactly. And if I have fun with somebody, then I want to be with that person more. So it's it's good to use the past, but to be conscious of it and aware Mm -hmm. of it. And when we're not, and we have very these dramatic and traumatic events in our past, then we, again, we use them to motivate us in the future. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, when we ask Palestinians and Israelis about the prospect of peace in this land, no matter how they define it, most will say impossible. And the optimist will say, not in my lifetime. Well, what makes me decide 
So it's a decision yeah. to say peace is not possible. Mm -hmm. And if it's not possible, then why would I put any energy in it? This is why I think most Palestinians and Israelis are in this place of deep resignation and hopelessness that there is peace. Yeah. Because it's impossible. And more and, and more. Uh, and the reason it's impossible yeah. is because the past. Yeah. The past is telling me it's impossible. Look what they did to us. Look how they treated us. And what they did is not 48 and 67 and 72. The past is me coming here and being stopped at a checkpoint for an hour. Yeah. And that triggers something in me. How can I make peace with them and look how they're treating me? Or I hear a story of my friend who's just got his home demolished. Or an Israeli child who gets stabbed in Jerusalem. How can we make peace with them? Like it just the story becomes the them mm -hmm. and look how they, and it's not what they are treating us. Mm -hmm. So the methodology is how can we create mindfulness and awareness of the past, but to understand that we could actually have access to our decision independent from the past. We can make our decision based on the future we want to create, not the past that we experienced. Mm -hmm. Because the past and the future are stories. Their conversations. But still we're future-oriented. Yeah, past, present, future. Yes. We want to be future, present, yeah. future. Yes. <laughs> Honoring, respecting, and learning from the past, but to be motivated by the past for the right things. Of course, I could choose, mm -hmm. but access to choice, not this automatic yeah. movement of the past into my present without me being aware of it. Yes. And, and you know, that's... It's something that I've been dealing with a lot recently as, um, you know, part of this yogic path um, um, helps, helps you, helped me to really um, strip away layers of my personal biography um, more and more to the level that really my, I, my core identity is not that. Mm. I, I can very much differentiate between the biography and mm. the identity. Beautiful, yeah. To many levels. And it's becoming more and more of that. But some, some, somehow something called me to go back to the story. Like there is still something in the story which is like a treasure. Yeah, it yeah. is important. It, it, is, um, it is the, in a way... The motivation of the soul's journey is hidden in that story. Yes. So I was on personal level, just beginning in the last few weeks, you know, uh, just told the story again and saw what mm. that brought. But also it made me understand, and I was telling this story also to, to look into the motivation for me to now go out on a 40 days journey to the desert. So there's my own personal biography But collectively, looking yes. into the story, um, I hear a calling to go back to our collective mythology and to find in this mythology the traces that the conscious, the soul consciousness has left there. Mm. And some of it is in the stories of the prophets And that's why I'm going back to that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, I fully agree with you. There is such, yeah, deep wisdom, deep knowledge in these stories. And if it's mythology or reality, it doesn't matter. But that's just the fact that there are experiences that happen. There are words that were said 
that have deep, deep meaning and intention and, and, and healing power in them as well. Mm. You know, in English, they say, uh, like, throwing the baby with the bathwater. And I think many of us have done that when it comes to religion. We throw... Reject it reject completely. Reject everything and completely yes. everything. You reject Christianity, that means you reject Jesus and Christianity and all that, or Judaism, reject all the teachings in Judaism. And and to return to the, the mystical, spiritual core components of it, I think it's a beautiful gift. Yeah. And that's what I you're think doing. It, it's a calling. It's a calling of our times yeah. for each one in their culture. Um, and because, you know, the cultures of this land are the cultures that have shaped the modern world. Uh, it is then become it becomes then the story not only of the people of this land, but the the story of, of the world, the whole world as it yeah. is today. Um so let's go back to one story mm-hmm. and one prophet again. <laughs> your favorite one. Your favorite prophet. Yeah. And his story of 40 days in the desert. Yeah. Um, maybe you can share how it touched you and and how you see it. It's a really interesting story of Jesus in the desert for forty days and forty nights in fasting. and 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 the prelude to the story is as interesting as the story itself. And so it was at the time when Jesus, who, in the text had kind of disappeared since the age of 12 there was nothing written about him until 30 and this is I, the first story that came when he was 30 which is the story of his inauguration into the rabbinical institution institutions yes and so the assumption that until that time he was studying and he was engaging and he was reading texts and going to yeshiva or whatever it's called, the schools to learn how to become a rabbi. Now, usually at that time, what happened was that people who wanted to become uh, inaugurated into becoming rabbis, there was one place and only one place they would go to, which is Jerusalem, the temple, to go to the high priests and to receive the blessing of the high priest and to the certificate, you know, the graduation certificate from the high priest. Initiation. The initiation. And so the first part of the the story is that Jesus did not go to Jerusalem to receive the initiation into becoming a teacher, into becoming mm-hmm. a rabbi, and that he went to the desert. He went to nature. He went to the water, to the land, to John the Baptist, who was... His teacher. His teacher, but he was also known as a crazy lunatic who was eating, you know, uh, locusts and honey and... yes. And and then for me, it's just, uh, you know, the, that experience of I want to be inaugurated to become a rabbi in water. And water is moving all the time and water is flowing all the time. It's not a structure. It's not a building. It's not an institution. Speaking of flexibility yeah. that you were talking before, it's the most flexible. Yeah. It's in water. You never even know what the weather is going to be like that day and to be in this place in nature. And then for me... Like, how can we receive our spiritual inauguration as prophets and from, not from the institution, not from the, you know, the, the universities and schools that teach theology and, and the institutions that know that nature actually is where we are connected with the Creator mm-hmm. more than Jerusalem, more than the temple, more than 
these uh, institutions universities. and universities. Yeah. And so that's the first uh, expression. The second interesting point for me from that story is that usually when you become a rabbi and you receive the inauguration and the certificate, you go and teach. You find your disciples, you collect a few people, and you begin to teach them. You open up the yeshiva, you open up the school, you open up the university. And The yoga class. Oh, you open up a yoga class. Yeah, you have the certificate now. You put mm -hmm. the sign in front of the door, you rent the place, and you become a yoga teacher. Uh, and again, Jesus challenged that notion. He received his initiation and immediately went into a time of deep fasting for 40 days and 40 nights in the desert. And in that time, receiving a lot of the temptations that he experienced in the way. And, and for me, it's just another sign of learning how when we receive title, how the ego can immediately take over. The moment I receive my degree, my BA degree, my master's degrees, or my PhD, my doctoral degree, I fully become motivated by my ego and my power and what I've accomplished and what experience. And immediately I want to become sort of the all knowledgeable and all knowing yeah. instead of going into this place of deep humbleness and transformation. And to say, no, I need to really now go deep and to address the issues that come up from the ego. And that's what, in a sense, Jesus did. Uh, so the, the main temptations that he experienced at that time was for wealth, which comes with degrees. <laughs> now I have a degree, I can become very rich. Power and abundance of food and needs. All my needs can be met. And he was tempted in these three levels and he was able to address them. And so for me, like the real inauguration of him becoming who he became was after the 40 days, wasn't even in being in nature, wasn't in receiving from John the Baptist, now you are a rabbi, now you could go teach. But to go into this deep personal journey of silence, of meditation, of addressing, and for me the temptations didn't come from a devil that appeared from him, the devil that's inside of us, you know, right. the ego that's inside of us that was creating all of these temptations. Yeah, and for me, you know, I, I, you know very well biblically, the number 40 is so, so powerful and so strong. And, and, you know, they talk about it takes 40 years for a whole generation to shift into a new mm -hmm. consciousness. And I think this is what he was doing on a personal level, 40 days of him going into this process. Because, the, I mean, research has shown if you want to break a habit, if you want to break an addiction, 40 days is the number that you need to break mm -hmm. from the past into something new. Mm -hmm. And so for him, it was 40 days of a personal transformation from what he had experienced and what he was brought up to. And that was how long it needed him to let go 
and these temptations came up because they were part of who he was as a child growing up. He was tempted by these things mm -hmm. to become that, to become a teacher, to become a rabbi. You will receive this. You will receive this. I'm sure like his mother, Mary, was like, <laughs> my God, we're just carpenters. I can't wait for you to become a rabbi. That means, you know, we'll have more money maybe in the house or we could open our own uh, synagogue and like, you know, Joseph, your, your father can build the, the, the furniture for like, like, you know, like, Prince, we're horse. probably proud of him to become something, <laughs> to become a teacher instead of just a carpenter. And, and that, so he grew up in that sense. And then to say, okay, now it's his time to completely let go. And it took 40 days to let go of mm -hmm. all the habits, all the yeah, addictions that the person has into something new. And so this is why for me, the story is so much part of a journey to really engage in. And that's what he did for 40 days and 40 nights. It's interesting. There's another biblical reference to forty days and forty nights in the, for with with, the, oh, within, with Jesus. within Christianity and Jesus. Yes, yes. At the end of his at the end, which story. is between <laughs> the resurrection and right. the ascending into heaven. So he again, there for was, 40 he days. disappeared for forty days again. He disappeared. He has a f like two or three showings that are mentioned, but mm -hmm. for forty days and forty nights, he was he was gone. I mean, and then he went into ascended. heaven and ascended into heaven and again like another transformative phase to go through in order so it took it took 40 days and 40 nights to in a sense to transform from the physical into the spiritual uh, body right. uh, that experience mm -hmm. so there's deep deep significance for the number 40 in these teachings so did you ever imagine yourself going for 40 days? I would love to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, as soon as you mentioned this project, you saw like the full resonance in it. And uh, yeah, my hope is that you continue doing it because at one point I yes. will do 40, the full 40 days uh, in the desert uh, to really, yeah, to, to have the time for it. Uh, and, and a big part of my journey in the last maybe two years has been letting go of many of many things i mean for me even to step down from the position of director of the organization and handing mm -hmm. it to somebody else and just becoming an employee of the organization is it was a big step for me and taking letting go of many things that have been connected with my own ego mm -hmm. uh, so i'm i'm kind of in this journey uh, but i think having the desert experience for four days would be an amazing gift an amazing process for me as well yeah mm. Yeah, for sure we'll do it together some at some point. Yeah. And for sure the intention is to really, you know, explore um, from the wisdom of the old traditions into what it would mean in the context of today, you know, and the, and the huge threshold that humanity is facing and what it would mean for us now to, to do it. Yeah. And the desert and the magic and mystery and mysticism of the desert and the gifts that the desert bring and the moon and the stars and the silence. I mean, just being here and walking just, you know, yes, a hundred meters at night into absolute silence in the Darkness. desert where you could hear everything that needs to be heard. Yeah. <laughs> Not what the outside world wants you to hear, but what the spirits what your heart wants you to hear. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be an amazing experience. Thank you very much, Sami. 
Thank it's you. really uh, a great honor and a pleasure. And um, yeah, let's go and meet the other prophets. <laughs> <laughs> let's collect the thousands of prophets. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there are many prophets as you started with. And they all need to be honored. Yes. For the work that they're doing all around the world. And to be encouraged into this, whatever their way of um, initiating them, themselves into the next stage mm. of their um, mission. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> This podcast was recorded by Sarit Maor, Simrit. Sound engineer was Dolev Rafaeli. The beautiful music by Rafael Emanuel Ran from his mantra album, I and Higher. For information about the 40 days journey and about other events and courses, you're welcome to visit our website at kundalinipilgrim.com.